Hmm. Friday the 13th has come on a Sunday this month. Thanks, Pogo. And if you remember that line, well, you're older than you look. This is TechBiter Worldwide for the week of July 13th, 2008. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in far less than an hour. That's because we leave out the sports, the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. You know, I have to call these things something while I'm working on them. So the working title for this one was Miscellaneous Musings of a Misdirected Mind. The title stuck all the way through being posted on the website. Sometimes I think about strange things. And that's kind of where this program is going this week. It's a series of shorts. No, not underwear. And no, not circuit. It's just a collection of thoughts that have occurred to me starting back in mid-June, when I started jotting them down, up to just a couple of days ago. The topics include open-source software, Model T's on the Information Superhighway, and some lions in my house. First of all, open-source software. Commercial software manufacturers want to sell their wares. That's not exactly a big surprise. Anybody who makes anything wants to sell it. Everybody who selects an open-source application in place of a piece of commercial software reduces the commercial software manufacturer's unit sale by one. And unfortunately, some commercial software manufacturers resort to sowing fear, uncertainty, and doubt in the marketplace. They'll tell you that you get what you pay for. They'll tell you that open-source software is written by chimps and maintained by monkeys. They'll tell you you won't get any support when you need it. They'll tell you that bugs won't be fixed promptly, if ever. Well, most of those are lies. And here's a good example. I use the FileZilla FTP client because it's highly versatile, functional, and works the way I want it to, or at least it does most of the time. Now, despite the name, FileZilla is not associated in any way with the Mozilla organization. When I downloaded version 3.0.10 in early June, the first thing I noticed was that the sort by date function suddenly had become broken. Sorting by name worked, but sorting by date produced a list that placed some files in what appeared to be random order. Now, for me, that's an important feature because I want to upload only the files that I've changed or added recently, and I depended on that sort-by-date function to identify those files. When I upload the TechBiter Worldwide website, particularly in the images directory, I may be uploading on any given week 15, 20, maybe 30 images, and I don't want to sort through an alphabetical list just to find the ones that I've updated this week. I want to sort them so that all the new files are right at the top. Well, that was broken. Well, I assumed that that had already been reported. In fact, I figured there would probably be a lot of reports citing that problem. But I visited the FileZilla section of SourceForge.org and opened their Bugzilla application. I was surprised there were no reports of the problem. So I grabbed a quick screenshot that showed the problem, wrote a quick summary, and posted the bug report. That was on a Thursday evening. On Friday morning... Less than 12 hours later, 
Less than 12 hours later, the bug was shown as resolved. A comment from one of the developers said, Thanks for reporting. The issue has been fixed in the SVN repository. It will be available in the next version. And indeed it was, a few days later. If you can find an open source application that performs the task you need, don't let fear, uncertainty, and doubt get in your way. Now, could I enter a bug report for one of the big manufacturers? Well, indirectly, yes. If I know the product manager, I can send a note. If not, I can try to report the problem via support channels. Open source developers often allow anybody to post bug reports. The bug reports are then examined, evaluated, and, if legitimate, used to improve the product. Somewhat related to open source applications would be the open source operating system, Linux. The June 12th edition of Network World had this quote by Roger Levy, a senior vice president and general manager of Open Platform Solutions at Novell. It was in an article that discusses the adoption of Linux by Wall Street firms. He said, There is a strong business case for Linux as an alternative to Microsoft or Unix derivatives. Among the findings in the report by Novell, the New York Stock Exchange and its international subsidiaries are adopting Red Hat Enterprise Linux, which will replace Solaris, Sun's operating system. Wall Street firms, of course, require quick and reliable computing. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank and Credit Suisse have developed an advanced message queuing protocol for use by financial institutions. Tab Group estimates that Linux adoption among the 14 largest investment firms will reach more than 72% of the server base this year, not on the desktop, but on servers. That's up 60% from 2006. Desktop adoption, of course, is far lower. But the servers are running Linux. Large companies are still concerned about licensing for Linux, because open-source licensing requires that users give back to the community changes that they make. The problem with that is that if a company develops a piece of proprietary software for their use, they then have to give it back to the community and could end up giving it to a competitor. And also, it appears that investment firms are embracing Linux as the operating system of choice while developing proprietary applications separately. Maybe that's the best solution for all sides. Morning Edition on NPR this past week had a story about a guy who liked to drive his Model T whenever he got frustrated or annoyed in any way. He'd go out and fire up his Model T just because it made him feel good to drive the thing around. The car's almost 100 years old. Somehow I'm going to relate that to this. A message I received not long ago from San Luis Obispo County email address noted that a website I developed several years ago didn't appear when the user typed the web URL. Well, I tried the URL and it worked just fine. The next message noted that the home page did appear, but only after several minutes, but that other pages on the site appeared quickly. So I did what any web wonk would do. I visited the website on my own, looked for things that would cause the page to load slowly. There weren't any. The site in question was developed in the late 1990s when you could not assume that most users would have a fast connection. So the graphics on the main page were limited to about 60K, including the banner and a graphic that showed two children. 
There were six buttons that required 12 images, each just 1K in size, so the total page, including text, was well under 100K. I could load the page in less than a second. Even someone with a relatively slow modem connection should be able to load the page in five seconds or less. My final analysis was that San Luis Obispo County was doing something that slowed the loading of the page, and I asked the user to check the connection from another computer, and particularly to check the connection from a computer that wasn't associated with the county. The page loaded fine. I know that not everybody has a fast Internet connection, either cable or DSL, and particularly 10 years ago when I was developing pages, I was very careful about making sure they were small. But these days, more than 50% of Internet users do have fast Internet connections. I also know that not everybody surfs the net on a system with a screen width of at least 1,024 pixels. But more than 80% of us do. That's why the TechBiter World Wide website has become wider over the years. It's also why I have included more screen images each year. I know that most users will see the screen as I intended them to, and that downloading all those graphics won't unnecessarily burden their Internet connection. Just as television stations needed to begin broadcasting in color, even though less than half of the viewers had color sets, so must website developers continue to follow the trends established by users. Even those who live in rural areas often can select a relatively speedy connection if they're willing to part with a few extra dollars per month. And if cable, DSL, and Wi-Fi aren't available, satellite service is available almost everywhere. Earlier this year, we went to the Columbus Zoo, found the lions up and around. Usually they're sleeping, but they were up and around. And in fact, one of them roared, not once, but several times. I don't think I've ever been by the lion compound when a lion has roared. I've heard them when I've been on the zoo grounds. But we were right there, and the lion roared several times. That was pretty neat. But I wonder if you've seen the Norwegian lion and her four cubs. A zoo in Norway has a lion. The lion had four cubs recently. And those lions have become international stars. Why? Well, because the zoo set up a webcam. And the webcam has become incredibly popular. If you go, make sure you go early in the day. Keep in mind that Norway is six hours ahead of Eastern Daylight Time, seven hours ahead of Eastern Standard Time. So if you visit in the late afternoon or early evening, it's already late night in Norway and the area is going to be dark. Early morning in the Eastern Time Zone is the best choice. There's a link to the Lion site from the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com. You really should visit it. Although the lions are older now, They spend a lot more time wandering around, and frequently they're not within the camera's range of view. But early on, you could watch the mama cat feeding the little kittens and then cleaning them up afterwards. People watched for hours at a time. I'm involved with an online discussion list for editors. In the first half of June, one of those editors posted a message to the chat area of the list. It included a link to the lion cam. I eventually got around to clicking the link later that day or the next day sometime. I saw the sleeping lion and a couple of cubs, and one of the cubs woke up and started nursing. Over the next several days, I watched the cats sleep and eat. I watched the mama cat groom the kittens. 
I watched the kittens, and keep in mind, these are lions. These are pretty darn big kittens. I watched the kittens wander around and bump into each other. I saw exactly what was happening a quarter of the way around the planet. Now, webcams aren't new, but this was different. I have never seen any baby lions at the Columbus Zoo because we don't have any baby lions. And even if we did, I'd get to see them for a few minutes, maybe half an hour. After that, I would wander away to look at something else. But I can see these lions in Norway any time, well, except when it's dark in Norway, any time that I want to watch for as long as I want to watch. I have a couple of images from the webcam on the TechBiter Worldwide website. I like having these baby lions in the house without having to deal with supersized litter pans or the hazards created by a full-grown lion who might not understand that I just want to look at her kittens. This isn't the same as going to the zoo, of course. The image is fuzzy. But frequently, it's closer than I could possibly get to see a lion at the zoo. And I don't have to get in the car and drive anywhere. The lions are available anytime it's light in Norway. You know, when the federal government created what was destined to become today's Internet, probably nobody thought of it as enabling people around the world to watch lion cubs in Norway. But I'm sure glad it turned out that way. Most people clean out their email from time to time, don't archive every possible message. The problem with cleaning things out is just about the time I do that, the message I was absolutely positive that I would never, ever need again suddenly becomes the most important message that I've ever received. And for the past several months, starting on March 5th, I have been automatically forwarding all of my email, including the spam, to Gmail for archiving. This started when the office began blocking ports 25 and 110, which effectively closed down access to my personal email accounts. That was resolved within a day or two through the use of port forwarding, but I decided to keep the special Gmail account I had set up anyway. It occurred to me that I could use it as an archive. Everything, including spam, gets forwarded to it, so I have both a complete record of all messages I've received, at least those since March 5th, and the last 30 days' worth of spam. That's kind of useful if I want to see the spam trends. I have a lot of special email addresses, probably 30 or so in all. All of these are combined so that they show up in a single email inbox that actually passes through Spam Assassin. Once they arrive at my computer, my email program, the BAT, sorts them back into various areas, personal messages, messages regarding TechBiter Worldwide, consulting messages, list messages. There's a diagram on the TechBiter Worldwide website that shows how this works if you're really interested. So these messages from about 30 different addresses are all accumulated on the TechBiter server at Bluehost in Orem, Utah. The messages are then forwarded to my Gmail account, so that includes, at the current rate, about 7,500 spams every month. They're also picked up by Spam Assassin, which strips out most of the spams, passes the messages along to my email client, the BAT, which then filters the messages into those mailboxes I mentioned, depending on the address of the sender, which address the message was sent to, information in the header, and other things that I put in the filters. It looks and sounds a lot more complicated than it really is. I like the ability to keep an eye on trends in spam, but the additional advantage is that every message I've received since March 5th, that's about 10,500 so far, excluding the spams, is archived. No matter where I am, I can look for a message in the archive, 
if I have access to the Internet and a web browser. A new feature makes this even more useful. If I want to reply to a message from Gmail, I can tell Gmail which address to use as the sender's address and the reply to address. That means if I receive a message to me at the TechBiter address, and I want to reply as Dear Mr. TechBiter, I can do that from the Gmail account. Now, to use this feature, you have to provide Gmail with the address you want to use, and you have to reply to a confirmation message. That keeps people from creating messages that appear to come from, oh, say, for example, Bill Gates. So if your email provider offers the ability to forward email while retaining it in your POP3 or IMAP mailbox, you might want to look at setting up a special Gmail archive account. It really does come in pretty handy. In nerdly news, a new law went into effect in California requires motorists who must talk and drive at the same time to at least have a hands-free phone. Since then, the California Highway Patrol has issued about 150 citations per day. And that might sound like quite a bit, but keep in mind just how big California is, how many people live there, how many motorists there are, and how many of them have cell phones. The number's really pretty small. By comparison, the California Highway Patrol says it issues about 3,300 speeding tickets every day compared to 150 for cell phone problems. Tickets for violating the hands-free law can cost about $100 right now at first offense. The law in California mandates that drivers 18 and over must use a hands-free device or a speakerphone if they want to talk on a cell phone in the car. Drivers under 18 are not allowed to use any electronic equipment while driving. Good luck enforcing that. But incredibly, California's new law does not apply to text messages. You can still text message and drive. It's likely that the California legislature will outlaw that next year. Seagate would like to put a terabyte and a half on your desktop. A terabyte and a half of storage. Not all that long ago, a terabyte and a half would have been the size of your desk, and not too many years before that, it would have filled your office. Seagate has announced three new consumer-level hard drives, saying they are the industry's first 1.5-terabyte desktop drives, about the size of a sandwich. Also included in the new product release is a half-terabyte drive for notebooks. 500 gigabytes in a notebook. Seagate says it's been able to increase the density by using perpendicular magnetic recording technology. PMR packs the data bits together sideways instead of using the traditional longitudinal recording. The Barracuda 7200.11 will be available in a 1.5 terabyte capacity starting in August. This is a 3.5-inch drive with four platters, each 375 gigabytes. It spins at 7200 RPM. Drive will have a 3 gigabyte per second serial ATA interface, sustained data rate of about 120 megabytes per second, so that's just a little bit faster than current drives. Prices? Sorry, not announced yet. Undoubtedly, they'll be toward the high end of the spectrum, but still, by comparison, amazingly inexpensive. Thanks for listening. This has been TechBiter Worldwide for the week of July 13th, 2008. I'm Bill Blinn. Don't forget, check out the website, www.techbiter.com. You can see the lions there, and you can also send me an email if you want. Thanks. Bye-bye.